welcome to Pure Curiosity. This is your host, Iris McAlpin, and I invite you to join me in this exploration of what it means to be human in our modern world. Here you may find answers, but I hope you'll find even more questions and allow curiosity to guide you forward. Let's begin. Well, Mimi, it is so nice to see you virtually again. How are you doing? I'm all right. Yeah. Life is kind of wild right now, but I'm really grateful to connect with you again. Yeah, me too. Thanks for saying that. Well, I always like to begin just by asking you to share with our listeners a little bit about yourself and your your background and what you're passionate about. Yeah. So I graduated from my undergraduate degree and I studied child development in something called medicine, health and society. And I studied that at Vanderbilt in Nashville. Um, and then I moved to North Carolina to start my master's degree in clinical rehabilitation and mental health counseling. And I'm halfway through that program. I'm really excited to start my practicum experience and start seeing clients just a couple in the fall. And let's see. I love coffee shops. I really like Instagram and yeah. That's so cool. Speaking of Instagram, you need to follow Mimi on Instagram. Her profile is amazing. I will link that in the show notes for sure. And I think something that I've just been itching to talk to you about is you have a a course online about the connection between OCD and orthorexia. And these are topics I haven't discussed on the podcast yet. I find them super interesting and I think other people will too. And I think I may be wrong here, but I'm sort of guessing that a lot of people aren't super familiar with orthorexia. So maybe we can just start there and and just introduce people to to what that even is. Orthorexia is an obsession with clean, right, pure, healthy eating. And it's an eating disorder um, that is not listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, unfortunately, but it is recognized by lots of providers and treatment centers. And it's really characterized by things like rigid eating patterns, only eating foods prepared a certain way, avoiding certain um, social environments because you're not sure how the food will be prepared or what will be served, eating beforehand, uh, and really just being very particular about what foods you eat. Mm. Yeah, even as you're describing it in those terms, I can already start to hear where the overlap with OCD might be. Yes, yes. I like to reconceptualize orthorexia sometimes to think of it as a set of obsessions with clean eating and compulsions where you change your food patterns and avoid different social environments, for example. And so it kind of mimics contamination OCD to me where it's like this feeling of the food has made me bad and there are good foods and bad foods. And if I eat a bad food, I'm a bad person. Um, and really just feeling the sense of like, it's going to make a big impact on my health if I eat a bad food type of thing. Right. So it feels catastrophic. Whereas some people might be particular to some degree, but if you have orthorexia eating a quote unquote unclean or bad food or junk food, feels a much higher degree of distressing. Mm -hmm. And I like to think too, like people with orthorexia often don't have cheat days or like, you know, cheat meals that they're like, oh yeah, you know, I'll eat this bad food every once in a while. It's really like, I can never have bad foods because they're physically bad for me. You know, they'll affect my health negatively. I might get sick or they just feel contaminated. Yeah. And 
I think it's okay to ask you this. Stop me if it's not, but just because I've, I've seen you share pretty openly on Instagram, would you be comfortable telling us a little bit about your experience with this? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, orthorexia started pretty insidiously. I joined a gym, had like a 90 day weight loss challenge. And so I started learning about carbohydrates and how they were quote bad. And so I think one of the interesting things about orthorexia is that the foods that are safe get narrower and narrower over time. So I was constantly looking up what are the most healthiest superfoods you can eat to enhance your health. And, you know, those are always constantly changing at times, like eggs, for example. And so people might say, oh, those are really good for you. And then someone else might say, oh, those are really bad for you. And you can internalize that message that like this is really dangerous um, and contaminated. And so for me, orthorexia was a lot of social avoidance because I was afraid of what people were putting in the food. And eventually it morphed even into being afraid of what other people were eating and being concerned about like serving them bad food and contaminating their bodies. So it really just goes downhill from the beginning. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that in, that sort of progressive element to it, because it often does start really, I guess, quote unquote, innocently. You know, we, we're all, I think, getting inundated with messages about health that it's often incredibly confusing because it's so conflicting, but maybe we're just trying to listen to the advice and then that can become a really slippery slope. And because you mentioned that you study child development and as you kind of have figured out by now, I'm super interested in in childhood experiences and how they shape us later in life. What are your thoughts on how someone develops something like orthorexia? You know, that's a really good question that I haven't necessarily thought about too much. I think part of it is genetic, these tendencies towards obsessionality and perfectionism being particular. And I think environmentally as well, what maybe our parents teach us about like good foods and bad foods can contribute towards that narrative or what they teach us about their own relationship with food and their body and movement. And so I think it's a mix of both and not to say that it's your parents' fault necessarily or at all really, but just to say that there's a something to notice about patterns that are generationally passed on. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think with social media in almost every 10-year-old's hand, unfortunately, I think these days, I think there's that factor that gets added as well. Because let's say even in an ideal scenario where maybe there isn't a genetic predisposition and parents have promoted really healthy conversations about food. If you're swiping through Instagram or TikTok and seeing so much information about health and workouts and all of these things, I think, yeah, it's just hard, hard to not have that be internalized on some level. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Well, so I'd be interested to hear you speak to what you see as maybe almost imagining this as a Venn diagram, like orthorexia on one side, OCD on the other side, and then there's some overlap in the middle. How do you see these two interplaying with each other? Yeah. So I had both. So I can, I guess I should say have both and understand what it's like to have 
you know, intrusive, unwanted thoughts about food and body that are similar to those intrusive thoughts about maybe harming others or harming oneself. Maybe those OCD intrusive thoughts are about running someone over, etc. So there are various themes of OCD. And when you look at the diagnostic manual, it talks about how an exclusionary criteria per se is if those obsessions are about food and body, because you don't want to have too many diagnoses all the time. And so it is really sometimes looks similar and then thinking about body dysmorphic disorder and body image. So there's that overlap. And then there's some that is different between eating disorders and OCD where someone can have both an eating disorder and OCD that doesn't necessarily look like orthorexia. And it could be things like binging on only healthy, quote, healthy or clean foods. Or it could look like using exercise to purge and, and having to do a certain amount of reps each day or something like that. Yeah, got it. Yeah, it that is something that is tricky about so many of these things is that criteria for one match criteria for another and parsing out, which is, which can be, can be really difficult. So I would be interested to know just from your own experience, how did you find out about these things? Like, did you always know that this was an issue for you or did learning about it kind of help you see that what you were experiencing had a name and was treatable in some way? Yeah, I didn't know anything about eating disorders or OCD until I went to undergrad to college. And I actually wanted to be a nutritionist at some point to help people be healthy and basically have orthorexia too, Mm, Um, (laughs) which was interesting. So I went to this nutrition class thinking I would maybe go that route. And we had a lecture on eating disorders and this, the two dietitians who came actually talked about orthorexia, um, which is really amazing um, looking back. But I really found myself resonating with what they were saying. And so I emailed them after and I was like, I think this is me. And I think I might have a problem with my relationship with food. And honestly, my insight really surprises me in that email looking back because I'm like, that's not where I was like mentally, but I'm really grateful um, that something really in me was like, this is, this is important. So I learned about eating disorders then and then OCD. I I took a test one day, like a psychological testing because I was very anxious and I actually lied about some of the answers. Um, And so she was like, it's almost OCD, but not quite. And I was in my head in that moment. I was like, it's definitely OCD. I would go on to actually learn a lot from different people on Instagram about different themes and really feel validated in um, psychoeducation and understanding that there was a name for what I was experiencing. And so this all happened within the past three or four years, which is kind of wild to me. Wow. And from that place, I would, and I'm imagining some other people might be curious to know this too. What were some steps that you took to start addressing this and really focusing on your recovery? I started seeing a dietitian at first um, and then a therapist as well. I didn't start therapy till I was in college as well. So everything kind of changed when I went to college um, in terms of the work that I do, the person that I am today. I started seeing a nurse practitioner who is a weight inclusive one, which was really important to me. Um, looking back now, I didn't know it at the time, but I think it's important for people to guide you in nourishing your body without having a weight limit for you. 
And so that was really crucial for my recovery. For OCD, I also sought out therapy, exposure and response prevention therapies, the gold standard treatment. And I found it really important to have people who understood OCD specifically, because I think there's not a ton of training necessarily in exposure response prevention in graduate school, just because there's not enough time in a two-year program to cover every single diagnosis and the treatment for each one. And so uh, I found that really, really helpful. And I also found support groups really incredible. Having other people who understand what you're going through is really crucial. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I'm just sort of wondering your experience, particularly around the OCD, because that is uh, an issue that most people are aware of and even use that term sort of casually, like, oh my God, I was so OCD about this thing. So people maybe have some baseline understanding of what it is, but it's often misunderstood too. And it's a term that gets overused. So I would just be interested to know what was your experience talking to the people in your environment about what you were going through? It was really scary at first. Um, So when I first started doing therapy for my OCD, I was in a pretty bad place with my thoughts in terms of I was really scared of what I was thinking and I didn't want to share it with anybody because there was a lot of shame. But sometimes you get to a point that's so debilitating that you just, you know, you need to try something else. And so I promised myself that I would show up, I would try whatever they wanted me to, and I would be honest with my therapist, just really honest about what I was thinking and what thoughts ran through my head. And that was the beginning of such a healing experience for me. I finally felt like open to share and be known by another human for my thoughts and for everything going on inside of me. Um, I'd always been jealous of people who said like, I'm an open book or like, you know, I am so able to share everything with my friends. And I just felt so locked inside of myself in terms of those scary thoughts that I thought were just mine alone. So it was really wonderful to have someone who just, you know, sat there and said like, yeah, you're not alone in that thought and it's not your values. Mm. And then how did you take that from, you know, talking to a confidential mental health professional to then sharing with anyone basically on the internet who finds you (laughs) on social media? I'm always so curious about people's experience with this because just speaking from my own experience, starting to talk about mental health on social media was super terrifying for me initially and took me quite a bit of time to get comfortable with. What was your experience with that and what inspired you to start doing that? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it was other people doing the same thing. I saw there was a specific account that was really vulnerable and open about our experiences with OCD and those really taboo, scary thoughts. And once I realized that so many people have those and so many people are just afraid that it's just them and that there's something wrong with them, I realized, you know, it's really important to share these messages. And I had also promised myself kind of early on in my diagnosis of OCD that if I ever found an answer to the thoughts in my brain and the scary things that were going on for me, I would help others because it was so bad to be on my own and feel like it was just me. And so I'm really grateful that I made that promise to myself and I'm able to follow through on it. Yeah. It's really beautiful that you did that. How did people receive it initially? Was Um, it 
good for the most part, actually. People have been really receptive and kind. There are times where I turn off the comments. Um, I, I just learned that function actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> because, you know, I'm just, I'm not interested in hearing anything that's going to be harmful for my community, for myself, et cetera. And, you know, if you disagree, you can always message me or just like talk to someone else about that. But I'm not the person, you know, people have actually been really kind and asking questions in a thoughtful way. Like, you know, I don't understand. Can you help me understand this? Or that sounds like something that might not be true, but I'm willing and open to listen, mm. which has been really, really great. That is really great to hear. Yeah. I, f- I don't know if it's luck or what. I feel like I've been pretty lucky on Instagram as well. I mean, there are certainly trolls and such, but for the most part, they seem to stay away from me. I don't know. And I'm glad that you haven't had to learn about the turning off comments function until recently. Yes. yes. Yeah. Well, I would be interested to know a little bit more and because I'm assuming there might be some people who want to hear about your course. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Yes, absolutely. I had been wanting to make a course for a long time, but I was so, I don't know what the word is, but I was like, I don't know if I can make a whole course by myself. I need to just sit down and write a lot. And so I started taking it in big sections and um, I made a workbook on orthorexia. I started working on all the things that I learned um, about OCD, about treating it, especially it's really geared towards clinicians understand what the gold standard treatment is called exposure and response prevention, to understand how to help a client through, um, to understand reassurance seeking bans, you know, the different themes of OCD, what even is OCD? Because I think, like I said before, there's not a ton of training on the specifics of it. And I think it's really misunderstood. And so I really wanted a place for people to learn about it in a fairly small course. It's not super long, I don't think, but, you know, packed with my own lived experience and my own learnings. Hmm. What are some of the things that you find people commonly do misunderstand about OCD? Like what are things that you find yourself having to explain to people or maybe even things that you thought yourself before learning more about it? Yes. One that is really interesting to me, I had gone to a doctor's appointment and I said, you know, I have OCD and the doctor is like, oh, this pandemic must be great for you because you can stay inside and wash your hands all the time. And I was like, mm. that is not the treatment for OCD. Yeah, that does not sound to me either. <laughs> oh my goodness. And so people seem to assume that like being in a clean environment and, and fueling those obsessions and compulsions would be helpful. But actually the treatment is really to lean into the discomfort, to expose yourself to the fears. And then this idea that there's only symmetry and contamination OCD. There's so many different things like harm OCD, sexual orientation OCD, postpartum themed relationship. There's just a ton of different ways that it can manifest and does manifest beyond just washing your hands or being organized you know, hand washing is a compulsion, but usually it's not just washing your hands three times or something. It's, you know, washing your hands till they start bleeding or until they feel just right. And so I think people don't understand how debilitating it is and that it's not an adjective or a quirk, but it's really hard. I think it's in the top 10 most debilitating mental illnesses, according to the World Health Organization. Wow. Maybe we can just pick one of those lesser known ones like harm OCD. What what does that look like? 
Yeah. So harm obsessions and compulsions would look like, for example, um, thinking, what if I harm a loved one? You know, you might be standing there cutting some vegetables and think, what if I just stab someone right now? That would be a really scary thought to have. So you might end up avoiding touching knives. You might end up avoiding cooking. You might end up avoiding being near people whenever you're having these distressing thoughts. It's just a really heavy thing because if you start having thoughts about harming other people, people might consider you a danger to other people. And if you share that with someone who's not well-versed in OCD, they might feel the need to report you or the need to um, send you to the hospital. When in reality, when you have OCD, these thoughts are opposite to your beliefs and values. And so you really don't want to have these thoughts. They're unwanted and they're not a reflection of your values or what you're actually going to do. Yeah. Thank you so much for that description because I'm already seeing this other parallel between that and orthorexia where it starts with some kind of intrusive thought. And then because of that, then certain behaviors start to get avoided or certain foods start to get avoided. And then that just gets narrower and narrower and narrower to the point that, yeah, I can imagine why it's one of the most debilitating mental illnesses. Yeah, exactly what you said. It it just continues to get worse. You know, with mm. having intrusive thoughts, you start to have them in different places and then you avoid all these different places or you might start to have them with different people and start avoiding different people, which is really similar to how your eating disorder can make life narrower and narrower. Mm. One thing I just find myself thinking right now is the overlap between anxiety thoughts and OCD thoughts. And I'd just be interested if you have any thoughts on what the difference is? Because I know a lot of people have like chronic worry and things like that, but it sounds like this is a little bit different. Yeah, that's a really good question. I'd say generalized anxiety looks a little bit different than OCD in that generalized anxiety is kind of a constant general worry about just kind of this feeling of anxiety constantly. And I think OCD thoughts are a little more specifically themed and focused on certain input. I might be wrong on this one, but that's what I would say. Yeah, that makes sense to me too. And that's sort of my understanding as well, that it it has a much more thematic element to it. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, the compulsions and the obsessions versus just that general, like, I'm anxious. Yeah. And so you've talked about the gold standard treatment And I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about what that actually looks like for people. Yes, it's very scary and very hard, but it's very, very helpful. And it really helps you lean into an exposure lifestyle, which basically just means kind of always leaning into the discomfort, doing things that you love, even when they scare you because you're moving towards your values. Mm -hmm. So an example of exposure therapy might be if you have contamination OCD, you might go and touch a toilet for 30 seconds and then not wash your hands, Mm. which can feel really, really scary and hard. Or another one might be if you have a metaphobia, watching videos of people vomit, which sounds horrifying and scary. It doesn't sound good for anyone probably, (laughs) but it's got to be extra hard. Yes. Oh man. Yes. So it's hard, tough work. And sometimes it feels like it doesn't make sense to do the thing that scares you. Um, But the goal is that you learn that you can cope with the distress and tolerate the discomfort and that you are so resilient and capable. Hmm. 
Yeah. I, I mean, I can see how that would happen if you can, I mean, yeah, just even for me touching a toilet for 30 seconds, doesn't sound like a great thing to do. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So I can see how that would build some resilience and some awareness that you're capable of doing things that maybe you didn't think you were able to. Mm-hmm. Would you be willing to share a little bit about some of your experiences with that? Or were those two things that you would had to do or? No, I actually didn't do those, but some that I did, I, I have hit and run OCD. So that just means that when I'm driving and I hear something, I'm often thinking like, was that a person? And then the compulsion is to go back and check, like, is someone dead? Like, is it my fault? And so this is actually a little bit more practical. So sometimes with exposures, it's meant to be practical to show you like, for example, I didn't know what it would feel like to actually hit a person versus a bump in a road. And so my therapist had me hit them with my car. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> so I could kind of feel like what that feels like versus a bump in the road. Obviously, I didn't run them over. Yeah. But that was a that's, very terrifying thing. I mean, goodness. Yeah, that sounds scary. I mean, was he or she wearing like full body armor or how does that work? No, I just had to slowly inch into him and oh he kept going like, come here closer. And then we had to do it in public too. And people were like, what, what is wrong with you? Like, wow. So. And did it help? It really did. We, I did a lot of drive exposure. So I had to drive down downtown Broadway and not check to make sure that I didn't hit somebody in Nashville, which is a really crazy place, drive around every day. And so just really learning that, not necessarily that I would never hurt someone or never hit someone because that's just not certain and we can't have certainty, but that I can cope with driving and the distress and the thoughts and still do the hard thing. That's incredibly creative, actually. Like As you're describing that scenario, I wouldn't think to have my client do that. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely outside the box kind of thinking, but it's really cool that it was helpful. Yeah. And it requires a lot of trust too. You know, I, I'm really grateful that he trusted me because, you know, I couldn't imagine having a client hit me with their car. I'm not sure how much trust that would have. <laughs> yeah, that's a very high degree of trust. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so if somebody is doing this type of therapy, I'm imagining you know, repeated exposure is part of it too. It's not just a one mm-hmm. and done. Yes, I had to hit him more than once. <laughs> wow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And so going back to orthorexia, is it a similar approach in terms of exposing yourself to foods that you might feel are are scary or contaminated or or bad? Definitely. There's a lot of fear food exposures. And so making a hierarchy can be really helpful for orthorexia as well, because in the same way that you don't want to start off like holding a knife, you don't want to start off with like the scariest food ever. And so it's important to kind of work your way up and see that you can cope little by little and step by step. Got it. Yeah. So like taking the baby steps so you don't overwhelm yourself and just want to run away. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, I feel like that's true across all of healing modalities. I think some people, you know, this can be a great quality in other areas, but some people really just want to dive into the deep end and like do the biggest thing, but 
if our nervous systems get overwhelmed by that, then the likelihood that we're going to stick around and keep going is, is limited, I think. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, it is great to like want to do all the exposures at once, but you really have to let it stick and let it take hold those patterns of like learning how to sit in the discomfort. And that takes practice and time, which is frustrating sometimes, but important. (laughs) Yeah, totally. We're so trained in our culture to want instant gratification and the quick fix and the same day delivery and all these kinds of things. And yeah, it just doesn't work that way with mental health. Yeah. I wish it did, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Something I would be interested to talk about, because I know I've seen you address this a little bit on social media, and it's such a common theme with with eating disorder recovery is this fear of body changes and, and what can happen in our bodies as we start to repair our relationships with food. Typically, there are some changes that happen. And so I would just be interested, you can share maybe from your personal experience or what you plan to to do with clients around this area, but... It's just one that is tricky because there are so, so, so many messages about how we're supposed to look. And so many people even get rewarded for their eating disorder behaviors with compliments. And and so moving away from that can feel really scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And I think the most important thing to remember, at least for me, is that it could happen no matter what. So whether you restrict or use purging behaviors, et cetera, et cetera, you know, your body could still change. And it's very hard to accept that like, no matter what you do, like your body probably will still change. Um, but you can accept a changing body because that is more sustainable to accept the changes in your body than to constantly be fighting your biology and your body's needs for nourishment and your body's needs to grow. It's uncomfortable work, but I think exposures can come in again here too of uh, intentionally not body checking or obsessing about the mirror, but intentionally exposing yourself to those parts of your body that you maybe don't like so much or, you know, exposures that might look like body gratitude lists or body just like recognition. And so that can be really important. Hmm. Yeah, that makes so much sense to me. I think something that helped me a lot in that process was also following a lot of different kinds of bodies on social media. People of all sizes, people smaller than me, people larger than me, people similar to me, but very consciously steering away from accounts that were about weight loss and like Fitspo kind of stuff and Thinspo, Mm -hmm. all of that, which used to be the majority of my feed. I don't know if you had that experience too, but for a long time, almost everything that I was following was somehow related to that. And slowly but surely I unfollowed and then started following accounts that broadened my idea of what it could look like to be happy in different types of bodies. And it wasn't an instant fix once again, but it it did slowly change my ideas of what it meant to be to be beautiful and acceptable in the world. I love that, and I agree hundred percent. Mm, yeah, and your account is is one of those that does such a good job promoting really healthy 
conversation about these things. So I appreciate that. Thank you. And yours as well. I'm excited and grateful. Yeah. So something that I've I've been enjoying asking people recently, just because I think we've had a hell of a year, everyone has in, in their own way. What are some things that, that bring you joy and make you feel hopeful about the world? I really love that question. I think recently specifically, like berry picking has been really fun for Mm. me. I did that the other day with a friend and that was just really nice and sweet. I think going and being able to see people again has been so wonderful to connection, has been incredible. And writing has been healing on Instagram and and just in general. And yeah. Mm. I love that. I've been asking that question to a lot of people and I've just loved how wholesome so many of the responses I get to that question are. It's so just like heartwarming for me. And since you brought in writing on Instagram, something that I'm always interested to hear, and I think other people will be too, is what is your creative process like? How do you get ideas? Do you have some kind of ritual or practice around creating content or does it just kind of come to you? What does that look like for you? Sometimes I have to force it a little more because I do try to post every day just because of the algorithm and everything. Unfortunately, um, if I didn't have to, I probably would post a little less frequently. Um, But I get inspired. I I, So I used to work in a treatment center and I got really inspired by my clients. And now it's a little bit harder because I don't see as many people. And so there's not as much conversation to be thinking about. But since I started going to the gym and life started opening up again a little bit, I've been able to hear things that are, you know, interesting that I want to comment on or that make me think. So I like that um, connection and interactions with people really get me thinking. Hmm. Yeah, it's so true. It is hard when you're sort of in a vacuum to to find inspiration out of nowhere. (laughs) So last year was interesting in that way. Yeah, I think... There is something really interesting about having to continuously show up to something. Or, I mean, I guess we don't have to, we choose to, but that continual practice of, okay, like even if I'm not inspired, even if I don't have this like nugget of wisdom that's just, you know, dying to come out, continuing to show up anyway and continuing to create anyway has mm-hmm. been a really cool process. Yeah. And I think it even like fuels us when we are inspired because sometimes, you know, I don't want to write a long caption, but it really gets me thinking and creative. Mm, Yeah. Just, this is kind of a detour, but we talked about this a little bit earlier. Has there, just from people in your, your own life, has there been any pushback about talking about mental health online? You know, Family members don't as much follow along on Instagram, so I haven't gotten much feedback on that. I've gotten just a tad about my podcast, but mostly it's been fine and they've been pretty supportive. So That's so cool. I love hearing that. I really thought people were going to think I was mad for sharing my personal experience with mental illness on social media. And I think I kind of braced myself to never be hireable, even like 
what if people find out? What if my future employer sees this? You know, all those kinds of thoughts. And I just, I mean, okay, granted, I work in mental health, so it's a different story. Maybe if I wanted to work in oil and gas or something, maybe it would be different. But yeah, I just haven't found any of that to be the case. I agree. And it's still, it's still something that runs through my mind, like with being a normal therapist, as I'm sure you can relate, like, is this professional enough or like, am I self-disclosing too much? But I think other people have really inspired me who are in the same work. And so it's been good. Who are some of your favorites? Tiffany Rowe uh, is amazing. And I really like Jordan Pickle as well. There's so many good ones. There are. How about you? Goodness. It's so hard to narrow it down because there are so many good ones. I love Whitney Goodman or Sit With Wit. Tony Talks Therapy. Lisa Oliviera. Nedra Tawab does really great content on boundaries. Hillary yeah. McBride. I like her too. She doesn't use Instagram in the same way that some other therapists do in terms of like making little quotes and memes and stuff, but she has a really nice presence about her and her podcast is really great. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. It's been so cool to see how I think Instagram has changed the landscape of therapy in general, because now it's just, it just seems like everyone has a therapist now. I mean, I know that's not true, but it's like in the sense that people who do have a therapist actually talk about it now a lot more than has ever been true in my lifetime where it used to be this very hush hush, like, Oh my gosh, you know, I saw a therapist one time, you know, it's like, yeah. yeah. Now everyone who, or I keep saying everyone now, so many people are just like, Oh yeah. Talked to my therapist last week. It was great. Yeah. Which is awesome. Yeah. That's one of the things that makes me hopeful is just the fact that some of these conversations that have been reserved for like hush hush private conversations are now just more commonplace. So do you have a sense of, of what you would like to do with once you graduate from school and what you plan to focus on? Yes. I dream of being an author and starting a group practice and being able to help other clinicians and so I, I, I think I'm going to move to California soon, um, within the next two years. Yeah. So <laughs> I'll be closer to you for sure. And yeah, I would love to start a group practice there and, um, maybe move to San Diego and we'll see. That sounds delightful. Yeah. That's so cool. I love, I'm going to make myself sound like such an old lady, but when I was your age, you know, like <laughs> I seriously had no idea what I was doing and yeah, it was, still very much self-sabotaging in spectacular ways. And so it's just so cool to see how focused you are. And I mean, you're already podcasting, you're doing all these things. It's just so cool. I'm so impressed. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I'd love to, to leave our listeners with just some ways that they can find you and interact with you and ways that they can continue to learn from you. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at the.lovelybecoming. And I just got a link tree. So all the links are there, (laughs) I think. So I'm excited about that. And I think I'll be hosting a workshop sometime this summer or in the fall. So yeah. Awesome. And 
Very last thing. If someone is is hearing this story and is inspired by your own journey and process and, and wants to do the same, like wants to take their struggle and use that as fuel to to make a difference and, and contribute to other people, what advice would you give to someone in that position? Do the work as you continue to grow. And, you know, I think as long as you're doing the work, it doesn't matter necessarily where you are, but that you're just committed. And so I think that, yeah, that's what I'd say. (laughs) Beautiful. Yeah. I think that is true at every step, really. It's just to continue doing our own work. Well, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Yes. Thank you for having me.